Good morning. Look at your bulletins. Growing old together. Full disclosure, when I thought of this title, I was picturing this couple like, oh, we're going to grow old together. But as I talked to some people over these last few weeks, they say they hear this title and they think, that's what's happening to us. We're growing old together. So at least it's together. That's good. Pull out your little outline there. It's blank. Maybe that's the blank slate you look into as you picture the future. We'll fill that up today. And you can open up your Bibles to Genesis 15, actually. The the story of Abraham and Sarah has a big turning point in Genesis 18. That's why I put that on your notes. But we will read Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. I told the first service that there is a contest going on. It starts at 1 p.m. today. On the bulletin, there is a photograph of a pair of hands. If you recognize those hands and email me and are correct, the first email after 1 o'clock gets a Cafe 4 gift card. They're not that old, so don't think they're like ancient people. Just wanted to keep you guys in the loop. This is Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, that's Abraham, in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Let's pray as we dive into God's word this morning. Father, we look into our futures and some of us do see this blank slate of wondering what you're going to write on our lives' path. Others of us have this picture in our minds that we believe is from you. We desire to grow old together with our spouse or grow into a legacy with our family. We have a vision from you on how you might want us to spend our days or our resources or our lives as we grow old and walk with you. And and we submit all those things to you this morning. Even the vision that you've given us, we give it back to you and say, Lord, we pray that you would direct our paths into whatever the future holds for us. We thank you for this story of Abraham and Sarah, this model of faithfulness as to uh, a couple that clung to you as you took them on a journey to discover the vision that you had for their future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When God speaks to you, He's doing something. You can write that down if you want to, but you might not forget that one. When God speaks to you, he's doing something. Sometimes we read the word and all of a sudden something jumps out on us and we know, okay, God's doing something here. I'm convicted about this. Sometimes we sit in a service like this and it seems like the whole thing has been tailored to us. Has that happened to you before? 
It's like the message and the music and the wrap-up and the announcements even are like pointing at you and you think, who told them about me? In those moments, we know that God is doing something in our lives and sometimes we don't know what it is. This week I was at Lake Chabot and was walking and I thought, I'm going to walk around the lake. And I made it about a mile and said, I'm going to walk about a mile and a half. And, and when I got about a mile into it, I, I was praying and I was thinking about this message. And, and all of a sudden this idea popped into my head that I knew wasn't from me. And it wasn't a brilliant idea. I just knew it wasn't an idea that was for me. And I thought, could this be from the Lord? And so I just kind of stopped on the pathway and sat down on this bench there and, and prayed for him and said, God, I don't know what you're doing with this thought inside of my heart. It might turn into something. It might be nothing. But I think there's something here. Sometimes we have experiences in life when we feel like something is happening and we don't really know what. Some of us get a picture from God early on in our lives and we're just waiting for it to come to fruition. At eight years old, you were putting on fake wedding dresses and pretending to walk down an aisle and you thought, okay, someday God will have me be married. You watch a TV show and you see families and grandparents and grandkids all sitting around this giant table and you think, man, I feel like God someday has me to have a house like that where the grandkids come over and there's room to run and it's a beautiful scene for my family. And we don't know if that's a word from the Lord or anything, but it's a picture, a glimpse of the future. And we think he's doing something there. Sometimes it's with finances. We start thinking about how we might want to spend our retirement in terms of what to do with the money we might have someday. And I think, God, I think you're calling me to be a generous person. I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know how that's going to manifest as I step into retirement, but I pray that you'll do something with that because I, I like that idea, and I think it's from you. Abraham had a very explicit vision of what his future would look like because in Genesis chapter 12, God told him what his future would look like. Abraham was minding his own business, walking in his land, in this pagan land, and, and God arrested Abraham and stopped him and said, Abraham, I have a plan for you. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. I'm going to increase your numbers. I'm going to increase your stature. I'm going to give you land and children and property. And so Abraham believed God. He left everything, and him and his wife Sarah wandered into this Desert where God would lead them, he said, towards the promised land. And over the next 10 years, God's promises started to become true. Abraham began to amass wealth and property and servants and cattle and livestock. God gave him favor wherever he went. He kept him alive and led him and led him and led him. And yet there was one part of God's promise that was not making any traction. And when God had called Abraham at 75, it was a little late in the game. And now that Abraham's 86, it's very late in the game. And Abraham's thinking, God, you're going to increase my descendants. I'm 86. I have no children. How do you increase that? And so here in chapter 15, when God comes to Abraham and he speaks to him and reminds him, spurs him on. Says, Abraham, I am your shield. I'm your very great reward. I will protect you. I will provide for you. Keep on going, buddy. A Abraham speaks up to the Lord and says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? 
and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. And then he was even more explicit. He says, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham's very honest with God. He says, I know this picture you've given me of the future, and you keep saying it's coming, but I don't see how it's going to happen. I look around and I see the property and I see the, the scope of what you've given me, but I look at our family and it's empty, God. And sometimes we feel like that. God gives us this vision of the future and yet we're a little puzzled as to how it's going to happen. And we're honest with God about that. We say, God, I, I think you called me to be married, but my finger is empty. And I've been trying to do the best that I can and I'm I'm trying to be the right person. I want to be the person the person I'm looking for is looking for, right? And yet there's no guys around or there's no girls around. Or just like Abraham's situation. You've always pictured in your mind this family with kids and grandkids, but as long as you and your wife have been trying to have kids, nothing's happening. You've gone to the doctor and you've gone to the Lord and you've said, God, I feel like this vision that you've given us for our future is from you, and yet I I don't know how this is going to happen. God comes back to Abraham and he says, no, it's not going to be through this guy Eliezer of Damascus. He says, a son that is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He takes him outside and says, look up at the sky. If you can count the stars, that's how many offspring you will have. So Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I can't imagine how awkward the conversation that Abraham and Sarah had after that was. 86 and 77 or so, sitting down around the dinner table, and Abraham says, "Um, I talked to the Lord today. (laughs) about, you know, our stuff with the kids and us being, you know, grandparent age and not having any children of our own. And Sarah's like, what did he say? Is Eliezer getting everything? It's like, ah, no. Um, God said that our child would actually be, for me, <laughs> my own flesh and blood, that this isn't an adoption thing. This isn't a probate thing. Uh, <laughs> this, this is a, a DNA thing. And Sarah, probably very graciously, said, Honey, um, it would be an amazing thing for a man at, at 86 years old to give birth to a son, but it would be a miracle for me, at 76 years old, to give birth to a son. And they made that very clear in Genesis 18. God tells us that Sarah was beyond childbearing age. And if you're not really sure what, what that means, you can Google that. Uh, talk to your mom or grandma about that. But they were at this point where it seemed like, okay, well, this is what God's saying. I don't know how it's going to happen. And so what Sarah does is she goes to her husband Abraham and says, okay, well, why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, and maybe you and her can have a baby. 
Now we read that and we're like, uh, no, 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 no. That's not the right path, right? That would not be a good idea. That wouldn't fly in your household. That wouldn't fly in today's society. This is not like surrogacy with doctors. It's a different way. And <laughs> you got that. Does that George? George got that. And, and, and yet it's interesting. Back in those times, this is kind of how people did things. You look at the 12 patriarchs, uh, J- Jacob had his 12 sons, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. They were fathered by one guy and four moms, two wives, a different story, and two uh, k- kind of maidservant women of the wives. And, and that was kind of how the culture did it, was that when you wanted to increase your family or when you were unable to have biological children, you would have babies with other women in your household staff, and that's how you'd populate your family. And so we read that and we think, okay, that's wrong and that's probably wrong, but that's not the application. Pens up. Don't write that. (laughs) But what's fascinating to me is that when you read the stories of the Old Testament and you see the culture that Abraham and Sarah lived in, it's fascinating to me that they had not done that yet. You know, Isaac, Jacob, those guys, they had many wives. David had many wives. People in that time had many wives. This is a socially acceptable practice. And, and yet Abraham and Sarah, even though they knew that children were in their future, even though they knew that God had promised them an heir, even though they knew that was an indispensable part of God's plan for them, and even though it was culturally acceptable to take a woman who was not your wife and raise your children through her, even though all those things were true, Abraham and Sarah chose to cling to one another and not go that route. It's interesting, there are a lot of things in our society that are, that are kind of gray areas of today. You know, say you are struggling with the same thing, with infertility, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, okay, here, here are the options. You know, there's, there's these uh, pills you can take, there's these treatments you can do, there's adoption, there's these different types of techniques, there's this, there's this, there's this. And as you're hearing that list as a believer, you're starting to kind of filter through which of those you're comfortable with, and which of those you're uncomfortable with, and which of those you're not really sure what they are, so you need to get more information, but you don't know if you're comfortable with that route. And so there's all these pathways, and you have to choose. And there comes a time in our lives with a lot of decision, not just with children, with finances, with legacy, with how we spend our time, with what we say to people, with work, when we've been always trying to walk down the road that seems best to us and honor the Lord, and there's been some gray areas that have been unsure for us, and we don't know if we're going to step into them or not, but as it gets more and more desperate, they start calling our name. And they're not necessarily evil pathways. They're what people do these days and all that kind of stuff. But you've always said, I'm not going down that path. It just doesn't feel right. And yet when times become desperate, sometimes we go to the Lord and we ask him for wisdom. And if we get desperate enough, we start feeling like, well, maybe maybe God's letting me be in this kind of limbo here because he wants me to take this path I'm not super comfortable with. Maybe you've been married for a while and you feel like a great marriage is what God wants for you. You look at this bulletin of growing old together and that's always been what you want. And that's, not what, that's what you know God wants for you too. But you look at the person who's been laying in bed with you or now on the couch away from you. And you think, I know God wants me to grow old with someone. But I don't know if it's, if it's him or if it's her. And you said when you got married that divorce was not going to be an option. But things have happened in the last few years that you think, well, 
I mean, it's not necessarily a sin. God might be releasing me from this. Maybe he wants me to step out. And you don't feel right about it. And you talk to people about it. They say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. But then you find some other friends who say, no, no, you need to do that. And you think, well, maybe God won't mind and he can kind of pick the pieces up for me. And maybe this is all some kind of test. And so we find ourselves walking down a path that we're not comfortable with because we think it's the only one available to us. The problem with that is whenever we go down a path we're not comfortable with, it gets really complicated really fast. And with Abraham and Sarah, the moment that Hagar got pregnant, the whole relationship just went sour. Hagar started looking at this lady, Sarah, and thinking like, you're not taking my baby away. This is my baby. I'm not going to let you take my child and raise it in your family. And, and so this tension kind of grew up where Sarah's like, no, 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 you work for me. That's my child in your tummy there. And Hagar's like, I don't know about that. And, and so Sarah goes to Abraham and says, well, what, what do I do about this? Hagar despises me. And he says, well, do whatever you want. And so Sarah just mistreats Hagar and drives her away. And the child that they thought was the child of the promise is living in this stomach of Hagar now out in the desert waiting to die of exposure. And Hagar's crying and thinking, God, how did I get into this mess? The problem is when we go down pathways we're not necessarily comfortable with, there's collateral damage too. And yet God in his grace goes to Hagar and he goes to Sarah and he goes to Abraham and he cleans them up again. He finds Hagar on the side of the road and he says, hey, what's going on? And she tells him the story and God says, you need to go back to Sarah and, and submit to her. I've got plans for the baby that's inside of you. Not the plans that, that they all thought was going to happen with that baby. I've got plans for that specific baby and I'm going to create him in, into a father of a great nation as well. Just go and come back and walk with me and we'll walk you through this thing. And then he goes to Abraham and he re-engages Abraham and says, Hey, Abraham, when I said you were going to have a baby, I meant you and Sarah were going to have a baby. And Abraham's like, "Uh, okay. And then God shows up at Abraham's house. And Abraham runs out to meet him and treats him well. And God says to Abraham again, when I come back next year, your wife will have a child. And Sarah in the tent, who's like cooking the lamb or whatever it was they were eating, goes, and in my favorite verse in the whole Bible, God says, did you laugh? And Sarah's like, no, I didn't laugh. And God says, yes, you did laugh. But sure enough, when God comes back a year later, little Isaac's there. It's funny, a lot of times when God fulfills the promises that he's made to us, we kind of laugh. We lived in Dallas for a while. We had this small group, and a lot of the couples in there were at the place where they're starting to have kids. And and there was one couple that came in, and when they joined our small group, they had four kids under four. It's crazy. We laughed at them. (laughs) We said, ha. Are they twins? No twins? How did you do that? How is that physically, biologically possible? All that kind of stuff. And they said, okay, here's the story. We, we were in Florida, and we couldn't have kids. We went through all these treatments. Nothing worked in vitro. All that. All this money. All this time. Nothing. And so finally we said, what are we doing? Like, there's so many kids in the world who need families. Let's adopt. And so they fly to Russia to pick up this baby that they adopted. And on the way, the wife's feeling sick. <laughs> 
And then they had two babies because she was pregnant. That's what I, I should have said that more explicitly. And then they get home. They're like, okay, this is a miracle. Now we've got two kids. Like, we should adopt a third one, complete our family, right? And so a couple years later, they go back to Russia to pick up another daughter. And then they come back, and she's pregnant again. (laughs) And they laughed. Another couple in our small group had the same issues going on, and they decided to adopt two boys from the foster system in Dallas. And and, and as they walked through that process and started raising these kids, all of a sudden, boom, pregnant. And then, boom, pregnant. Now they've got four kids under eight, I think, so that's, that's where I'm at. My wife and I have never really experienced that side of the story. We tend to have a lot of children, easily, and <laughs> so we have, uh, we have four kids under eight, and they're about two years apart, and after the third boy, my wife was, like, trying to keep her strength together because the girl just wasn't coming, you know, and... And we find out because we like to torture ourselves to what we're having. And, and so we go 20 weeks in, we go to this sonogram, and, and Jessica's been praying about this. God, this fourth, let it be a boy. I mean, nope. Let it be a girl. We've got enough boys. I just want to use this tiara for something, right? And, and so she's praying about it. And she said she'd been praying for weeks about this. And all of a sudden, right before we go to the sonogram, it was like God blindsided her and said, honey, it's another boy. And so we get there, and sure enough, the sonogram text says, uh, yeah, it's a boy. And we laughed, and she cried, and we <laughs> laughed. And we named him Braden Isaac Strange, because Isaac means he laughs. <laughs> Abraham and Sarah named their child Isaac because they felt like God was laughing at them in the best way possible. They had gone all over the place trying to fulfill his promises their way. And God is saying, if you just would have waited, you know, until you were in your 90s, I would have given you what I said I was going to give you. Genesis uh, chapter 20, says that sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son? Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac 
and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Why would God do that? Why would God spend so many years bringing this miracle child into the world so that all could celebrate the generosity and goodness of the God who fulfills his promises and then come back to Abraham and says, take this gift that I gave you, this promise you've been waiting for, this thing you've been chasing your whole life, and and slit its throat and light it on fire. Is God just being mean? Was Abraham being punished for his sins? God says Abraham was being tested. God had no intent to kill Isaac. But God's desire was that Abraham would prove to himself, prove to the world for generations to come, and even prove to God that Abraham's faith was not in the gift, but in the God of the gift. So often we spend so much time chasing these things that we think God has put in our lives. And whether it's the fertility thing, or it's the marriage thing, or it's the money thing, or it's the whatever thing, and we just think, God has it for us, I need it. And so sometimes we take righteous paths to get that thing, sometimes we take some shortcuts to get that thing, but we find ourselves so often so fixated on that thing. And so God comes to Abraham and says, I want to make sure this isn't about Isaac, this is about me. God never told Abraham to do any of the crazy things Abraham did. He told him to leave everything. He told him to circumcise himself and everything in his household. So he did tell him some crazy things, but God never said, get with Hagar, your maidservant. God said over and over and over to Abraham, I will provide a child for you. I'm going to do it. So let me do it. Yeah, if there's a righteous path you can take to get there, there's a way to have a child, do those things. If there's a righteous path to get to the goal that you feel like God has put in front of you, you run after that goal, but you have to remember the goal is not the goal. What was credited to Abraham as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6 was his faith, that he believed God. Like the author of Hebrews said, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and became the father of many nations. Abraham finds himself in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, not because he did anything good, But because when God said, I'm going to do something, Abraham said over and over and over again, here I am. God, I'm here. What do you have to tell me? What are you doing, God? God, here's my concern. Here I am. Send me. Sometimes we think that we need to navigate the path to get to the goal that God has for us. And there are responsibilities we have along the way. And yet the lesson of Abraham and Sarah is that when God has a promise, or God has a plan, or God has a desire for you, he will do it. It's not your job to make it happen. He makes things happen. And sometimes he makes things happen totally different than you ever thought, and that's why we laugh. 
Sometimes he makes things happen in a way that we would have never expected, and so we laugh. Sometimes he allows us to walk through heartache as we go through dark times or make bad decisions or find ourselves in need of community. And then he brings us out to the place he has for us because he's growing us and testing us and nurturing us and making us the people who are after his heart so that we would be men and women and children who trust him and put our faith in him and don't spend our lives chasing after the gifts, but abide in him. And see fruit be born. You can't help but read this story about the near sacrifice of Isaac and and not hurt for a father who would be willing to sacrifice his son because he loved God so much. And yet when you read the New Testament, we see all the same imagery, even the same words. Your only son whom you love, Jesus, carrying the wood on his back, And walking up the hill to Calvary and being slaughtered there as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. Now the reason Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness is because Jesus was the only righteous one. So really all we can do is not walk into heaven as righteous people but trust in the one who lived on our behalf. Trust on the one who was slaughtered on that hill. Trust in the one who raised himself from the grave who has power over life and death who breathes life into our lives And fulfills his promises. Now I love how this Genesis 22 account ends. Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The only thing's different for us as Christians reading this verse is, to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it has been provided. The mountain where God sacrificed his son is the mountain of provision. Where in Jesus we see all the promises to Abraham and all the promises of the old covenant, all the promises of God throughout the ages are fulfilled in him. When Paul talks about Jesus, he refers to Jesus as the seed of Abraham. The fulfillment of the promise that God made in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. That he is the one that from Jesus all nations of the earth will be blessed. So this afternoon, as we take communion, it becomes a a time for us to remember that the reason that we have faith and the reason that we have righteousness and the reason that we have a relationship with God is not because of us, but because of him. Because his son was sacrificed on our behalf. And so we eat this bread and we drink this cup and we do it in remembrance of the one who died so that we might have life. This morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll take communion. This morning, as the ushers come forward and we prepare to receive this communion meal, let's take a time together and reflect on where this resonates with our lives. Where is the promise from God that you're waiting on? And how can you cling to him and not the thing that you've been waiting for? In a few moments as you hold this communion cup and this bread in your hands, remember the death of Jesus. That his death brings you life. That by his stripes are you healed. 
that any promise of God is fulfilled in him. And so he has the power and the goodness to bring you into every good place. Spend some time with him this morning. And we'll take communion in a moment. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you. And as we uh, hold these elements in a few moments, we're reminded of your son who walked up that mountain in view of his father and was sacrificed for us. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. That 2,000 years after Abraham walked up that hill and God said, no, 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 keep your son. Father, your own son walked up that hill. And he was slaughtered there so that his blood would be effective for our righteousness. We don't understand it and we have a hard time believing it sometimes. And yet we thank you that you are a faithful God. We pray that we would cling to you in all things. We would seek the giver and not the gifts. And that as we trust you and abide in you, much fruit would be born in our lives and we would see communities and generations impacted around us as we merely trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.